Welcome inside Bernstein's Global Headquarters here at 1345 Avenue of the Americas in New York. I thank you for joining me for the next edition of our podcast. Today we're talking about one of the hot topics in the news, Bitcoin and blockchain. Is it a fad or is it the future? I'll admit to being far from an expert on this topic, so to help you and I learn more, I've called in Bernstein's resident expert, Senior Portfolio Manager Paul Robertson. Paul, thanks for joining. Pleasure to be here, Mark. For those who don't know Paul, let me take a second to give you a few snippets from his biography. Paul joined Bernstein 20 years ago as a research analyst. He's covered media and telecom. Prior to joining Bernstein, he worked at McKinsey. He was a quantitative analyst for the Australian money manager and an economist for the Australian government. Paul, I remember getting into a discussion about Bitcoin on a flight back from Denver in uh, 2014. And this felt like a conversation no one was having. And today this feels like a conversation you have over family dinner. The only thing I know is I probably should have bought Bitcoin when I got off of that plane in December of 2014. So I don't want to get into the small details of the technology today. I think the big picture question to ask you is, what's all the fuss about? Mark, you really should have bought some Bitcoin when you got off that plane. The the fuss is about the amazing run-up in the price of Bitcoin over time. Now, just to put this into context, a typical good old-fashioned speculative bubble sees asset prices go up 1,000% or 1,300%. I'm thinking about the, the Dutch tulip uh, bulb craze or the South Sea bubble or even our most recent technology bubble of the late 90s. Those are the kind of asset price increases you get. But now just contemplate the run-up we've seen in the price of Bitcoin. Uh, in late 2010, early 2011, you could buy a Bitcoin for under a dollar. At its peak, in December of last year, it was trading at over $19,300. Now, if you just do the math for a moment, that translates into an increase in price of about 2 million percent. That is what all the fuss is about. And why has that fuss, or why has that noise built to a crescendo, let's say over the last three to six months? It wasn't like in 2012 and 13, you felt this train coming. It feels like it really just arrived over the last six months. Look, I think we have to go back to Warren Buffett to understand this. Warren Buffett does a very nice job of explaining how speculative bubbles start and then build upon themselves for a period of time. The, the idea, of course, is grounded in some sort of intriguing intellectual idea or a piece of new technology. Uh, people look at the piece of new technology and think there might be some money to be made here, and the early price gains attract new investors and validate the original investors' uh, thesis. And so for a while you have a virtuous bubble, a virtuous cycle here, driving the price ever higher and higher, sucking in more and more investors. But eventually, uh, like all good things, the story is overdone and reality sets in and price declines can occur, dramatic price declines. So Buffett likes to buy brick-and-mortar businesses, right? Easy-to-value type things, which leads to the question, how do you value a Bitcoin? This is the great conundrum. Um, look, 
valuation is inherently subjective, but the economist in me has to say right up front, it's about the interplay between demand and supply. The supply side of the Bitcoin story is very straightforward. It's written into the code, into the Bitcoin system software, that only 21 million Bitcoin will ever be created. So that's like a com computer constraint for the people who aren't tech savvy here. That's right. It's a computer constraint. T today we have a bit over 16.7 million Bitcoin that have been created. So if I can just interrupt. So the, the government in the U.S. can continually print money. Right. This is a finite supply. This is a finite supply. Okay. This is, in that sense, rarity or scarcity. But let me just point out that not all rare things are valuable. In fact, most rare things are not valuable. Again, think about your, your old childhood stamp collection or baseball card collection or coin collection. These things are rare but not valuable. So to really understand Bitcoin, we've got to go to the demand side of the equation. And just to keep this at a high level, let me lay out three basic reasons why people demand things. The first reason is because the thing is useful. Now, the Bitcoin claim here is that it is a currency and that it can be used in a particular payment system that offers you privacy and anonymity when you're trading online. However, it turns out to be a slow and rather expensive payment system. So this is akin to like a Visa or MasterCard or American Express? Absolutely. It's okay. exactly akin to that, although private and, and anonymous. Uh, but it turns out that because the Visa and MasterCard systems are so quick and easy and the Bitcoin system is slow and expensive, very few people actually use the Bitcoin system to make payments. The vast bulk of the transactions on the Bitcoin system, according to all of the survey data that's been done, the survey work that's been done, are speculative transactions. So Bitcoin is not getting its tremendous value because of its use on this payment system. The second reason that things might be demanded is because they generate a stream of cash. And when you buy a stock or a bond, you're attaching a value to that stock or bond, in theory at least, based on the stream of cash you expect to receive over time as an owner of that asset. Well, Bitcoin doesn't throw off a stream of cash, so that doesn't apply either. So now we're dealing with a, a class of objects that are not especially useful and don't generate a stream of cash. Now here, I think we're in a world where what makes the difference is compelling aesthetic or cultural value. Now, for aesthetic, for, sorry, for compelling cultural value, I might just turn quickly to um, the sale of a Leonardo da Vinci painting last year. Uh, it was once thought to be a copy of a lost original by Leonardo da Vinci. And the copy sold for, in the last decade for about 10,000 US dollars. But a group of entrepreneurs looked at it and decided it might actually be the lost original. They bought it, they had it restored, and they sold it. Well, not they, another entity eventually sold it last year for $450 million. Not $10,000. which is the largest or the right. most expensive sale ever. Most expensive painting ever sold. Why? What, 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 what transformed it from 10000 to $450 million? I'd love to know. It's a Leonardo da Vinci. And there are only 15 paintings in the world, including this one, either attributed largely uh, 
uh, or wholly or in part to Leonardo da Vinci. So compelling cultural value. And rare. It's got both. Right. Well, obviously rare, yes. There's only 15 of them, but there are many other artists who only ever produced 15 paintings whose works don't sell for $450 million. Right. Leonardo da Vinci is a cultural icon. Anything Leonardo da Vinci touches is worth a lot of money. So that's cultural value, and I think we can... It's too early to say about Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency that it will have the kind of lasting cultural value that a... Leonardo da Vinci painting might have. The other reason that not very useful things that don't generate a stream of cash are valued can be for compelling aesthetic value. And I have a perhaps intriguing example for that. I think that the reason gold is elevated to a special place in our monetary system and the monetary systems of cultures throughout time is because of its aesthetic value. And, and let me tease this out. It's not because it's rare. There are many rarer metals. It's not because it's especially useful. There are many metals much more useful than gold. And it's not because we can't find other metals that don't tarnish. That, of course, is the problem with silver. Silver tarnishes. Oh, no. There's a long list of metals that are rarer than gold and more useful than gold and which don't tarnish. Things like platinum and palladium, but ruthenium, uh, iridium, a whole string of them. What distinguishes them from gold, however, is their color. They're either silver or silver gray or blue gray. The appeal of gold is, is almost primal. And if you doubt this, I suggest this experiment. Go to your favorite art museum. Spend a few hours there. Get thoroughly worn out. Get to the point where you're saturated with looking at beautiful things. At that point, you may find yourself walking past display cases largely impervious to whatever's in there, unless there's something gold-colored, and that will catch your eye. Gold is accorded tremendous value and significance in our culture and many other cultures because of its gold color, its aesthetic appeal. Now, again, how does a cryptocurrency measure on this dimension? Well, clearly it doesn't. They have no tangible presence. Right. They're a digital world phenomena. So just to summarize, how do you value a cryptocurrency? It's, it's very subjective, but if we look at the traditional markers of value, things like usefulness, uh, generation of a stream of cash flow, or compelling cultural and aesthetic value, cryptocurrencies don't pass the test. They don't seem to be um, the kind of things that will prove to, in the long run, be stores of value. So our advice to our clients is not to invest in cryptocurrencies, just because the future values are so uncertain. Now, that's not to say that uh, you can't have a little speculation here. I'm all in favor of that. But, but when you call something a speculation, I hope that means that you size the position appropriately and perhaps even diversify across a number of currencies. So, so that would mean that when it goes from zero to 20,000 at the end of last year to 9,000 or so today, it's not based on its stream of, uh, stream of cash flow. It's not based on the amount of payments it's processing like an American Express or Visa. It's based on maybe the ability to be a store of value at some point in the future and largely speculation? That's the way it appears to us. I mean, there's a lot of evidence of um, 
speculation in the capital markets today. We've been in an environment of very cheap money for an extended period of time and low interest rates make it easier for people to hold positions that are not generating much in the way of return for a long period of time. And I, and I have in mind companies like Amazon, um, which barely makes any money outside of its web services business, or Netflix, um, or even Tesla. Um, all of these companies, just to be clear, have generated enormous value, but their stock prices potentially have taken that genuine value creation and multiplied it by two or three or four. Um, that's the kind of uh, speculative impulse we're seeing, uh, perhaps fueled by cheap money um, across capital markets around the world. Let, let me ask a broad question. So when the notion of cryptocurrencies was developed, I know it was in a paper, what was their initial idea? Yes, this is the really interesting stuff. It was about privacy. I mean, I think the Facebook scandals of the moment make are just highlighting that when you um, engage in, on, in, in the online world, you know, the, your data can be stored and profiled and used to direct all kinds of marketing messages to you. And not everyone is happy about that. And indeed, there's a famous group of um, computer scientists, programmers, etc., uh, in San Francisco who began meeting in the mid-90s. They called themselves the cypherpunk community, and they advocated the use of strong cryptographic techniques to essentially preserve privacy in an online world. Not to do illegal things. The, the best analogy here is withdrawing the curtains in your living room. It's not because you then want to go and do something grossly illegal behind those drawn curtains. It's just Privacy is important to people, and it was this cypherpunk community who, through collaboration and a series of papers, ultimately created the Bitcoin system. The Bitcoin system was designed to allow you to trade online, privately, without the use of a trusted intermediary like a bank or a credit card company. Of course, if you were going to use a trusted intermediary, then your data couldn't be private anymore. It would be collected by that bank or credit card company. So the idea was to create a way for you to trade privately online. That was the genesis. So often, often mixed with this notion of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, we hear the term blockchain. Is that the same? Is it different? What's that? The blockchain is the, is the genius behind the whole idea. The simplest forms of trade in our world, uh, in any world, are where you are trading with someone you know very well. I mean, you're both pillars of the local community, you both have reputations to preserve, and you're going to ideally be trading with one another for a long period of time, many transactions. That's an environment where you can have great trust. Now, contrast that with an online situation where you're trading with an anonymous counterparty, who, known only to you as a string of numbers and letters, about 64 characters long in most cases, um, and you're using a made-up currency, a digital currency. How do you feel about that? That is a situation where the, tr the barriers to trust are almost insurmountable. Other digital currency systems have been proposed, but they've all failed around this issue of what's called the double spending problem. How do I know 
my counterparty actually has the currency they claim they have? How do I know they haven't already spent it? This seemed like an insurmountable trust problem until the inventors of Bitcoin came up with this concept of the blockchain. What the blockchain is, is a chronological record of every transaction made in the Bitcoin system. And what it means is you can have complete confidence at the moment you engage to trade with someone, that they actually have the Bitcoin that they're claiming to have and that it will be transferred to you through the operation of, of the Bitcoin payment system. Is it almost like a, I'm oversimplifying this, but like a checkbook ledger? We, you, you know the whole history of how everything's come and gone? Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. It, it is this beautiful chronological, time-stamped chronological record of every transaction. And, and you can look at it and you can create a record of every, one, of every 64 character long string of how many Bitcoins every one of those things owns. Can this be transferred to things? In other words, you'd get a record of goods. Absolutely. The, the concept of the blockchain can be used to track ownership in all sorts of things, not just ownership of Bitcoins, but ownership of real estate, ownership of securities. So this would be relevant in like a title for a house, right? Well, that's one of the clearest examples. And indeed, in Sweden today, um, they're trying to put all of their real estate registry information onto a blockchain. Now, just imagine that kind of world. Today, when you go to buy a house in the US, you have to first do a title search, and then which costs you some money. And then second, you have to take out title insurance just in case the person selling you the property doesn't actually have valid title to the property or there are some outstanding liens that will only come to light after the transaction has been executed. Now all that can be done away with with a blockchain system. You won't have to pay a lawyer to do an expensive title search, you'll just consult the blockchain. The blockchain will be the indisputable record of who owns the property and what liens are currently outstanding against it. Uh, it's going to potentially revolutionize the business of transacting real estate, uh, certainly ideally first in Sweden and then in many other parts. And of so the maybe world. this is far-fetched, but even in something in like food, right? So you go to your grocery store who you trust and you assume that the apple you bought is from where it said it was from. Is there a world where I can see that this apple was grown in New Jersey in December and it switched hands four or five times and this is how it got to me? I actually think this is a very big, cool. <laughs> big application because I'm going to actually be more cynical. I actually think a lot of the reason why organic produce hasn't taken off in the market is A, it's expensive yeah. and B, there's a lot of skepticism on the part of many consumers about what it means to describe something as organic. Sure. Uh, but with a blockchain system, you might be able to, exactly as you've described, track the produce from a farm to the supermarket and therefore know that it, you know, it wasn't transported tens of thousands of miles to get to your supermarket and that indeed it was grown on a farm with a solid reputation for organic practices. I suspect that the blockchain system applied to organic food in particular could transform consumers' perception about the reliability of those sort of claims and could 
really expand the market for organic produce. At core here is a trust issue. I don't trust when they put that label organic on it that it really means anything. But with a blockchain system, we can all come together around this record of truth and say, ah, it was grown on this farm with these practices and then it was brought to my table in this way. So that might spell the end of out-of-season avocado. <laughs> but it also is interesting because it, 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 I think of this almost as inadvertently like a consumer empowerment movement because you have information about everything, whether it's the house you're buying or the produce you're buying. I think this is, this is right. Um, but, but I'm going to step back even further. Trade is made possible when we trust in the, pe the people that we're trading with. And trade doesn't just mean financial markets trade. No, no. You mean goods and services Goods trade. and services, exactly. And, and we've created so many mechanisms to overcome problems to do with trust, deficits in trust. I mean, contract law is all about this. A lot of government regulation is about giving you reason to trust. We have lawyers and accountants and business brokers. These are all mechanisms to overcome trust issues. My favorite is the way commodity futures markets work, uh, the way the exchange breaks up a contract and intersperses itself between the two parties transacting and, and makes the exchange itself each party's counterparty. There are these lots of mechanisms for overcoming trust issues which vary in effectiveness and vary in expense and it's quite possible that clever blockchain implementations will do away with many of them and will reduce cost and will cause a blossoming in trade in situations where it doesn't currently happen to a great degree. But the really interesting applications are the ones none of us can imagine today when trade that no one would even consider within the realm of possibility suddenly becomes possible because count people who have no reason to trust one another can all come together around this record of truth and, and trade with confidence, whereas prior to the blockchain they had no reason to be confident no, at so, so I've got to ask the investor question, right? So you, you picture this world that seems much more empowering, much more trust, much more trade. If I'm an investor and I'm getting excited about this, how do I, how do I play this space? Well, that's the difficult thing. The, the, the first applications of this technology outside of cryptocurrency systems are being done in companies like Walmart, uh, which is using blockchains to knit together supply chains, exactly the kind of food examples we were talking about a moment ago or in big banks like JP Morgan as they explore ways to bring down the cost of processing securities transactions and in particular loan transactions. But those are, are efforts that ultimately bring down cost really, that's mm -hmm. their benefit. And in the context of behemoths like Walmart and JP Morgan, that doesn't actually translate into a massive incremental return for investors in those companies. We own them in our clients' portfolios, but you're not going to get a 10 times return on Walmart right. from this point. From supply chain management. From supply right. chain management. So all the, the challenge facing investors today is very much like that of investors in the late 1990s when you're looking at the technology bubble. Investors were willing at that time to fund thousands of different business models and most of them failed. Although from the wreckage grew those tremendous value and wealth creators like Amazon and Google and Facebook. 
So our challenge is how do we, with this new blockchain technology, how do we identify or, or how do we at least improve our odds of identifying uses of the technology that are likely to succeed and, and generate serious wealth over time from uses of the technology that are likely to just fail. And I think the best we can do is ask ourselves a series of questions when confronted with any blockchain idea. I think the first question is, is there a trust issue here that needs to be overcome? Uh, let's say there is a trust issue that needs to be overcome. Let's go on and ask the next question. Is a blockchain the most cost-effective way to overcome this, this trust issue? And again, just let me remind you that over time, we've created all manner of mechanisms to overcome trust issues, and some of them are pretty effective and, and not very costly. Lastly, if we conclude that we have a trust issue that seems best overcome with a blockchain solution, how are we going to incentivize people to actually participate in this solution? Again, that's the genius of the Bitcoin system. The Bitcoin system actually incentivizes outside parties to join with the system, to contribute computing power to, a, to the system, to process Bitcoin transactions. These, of course, are the famous Bitcoin miners that you've talked about. Any new blockchain implementation has got to work out ways to incentivize people to participate in that blockchain implementation in some way analogous to the way the Bitcoin world incentivizes the miners to contribute their computing power to the system. So if I'm an investor, do I want to be buying Bitcoin or do I want to be buying the miners or the people who are contributing to the system? And then, and then how do I do that? I think as an investor, what you're ultimately looking for are new and interesting applications of blockchain technology. And, and just to whet your appetite for this, I think blockchain is the biggest innovation in accounting since the entering since the introduction of double entry bookkeeping, which was first described in Italy in 1494. And potentially, people disagree about this, but potentially was one of the enabling factors behind the Renaissance and the rise of capitalism around the world. Prior to double entry bookkeeping, there were constraints on how big and complex companies could be and how complex their activities could be. But in the centuries that followed, we saw the rise of major trading houses and major banks, big, complex companies. We never called them double-entry bookkeeping companies. We called them banks and trading companies. But at their core, they were making use of this new accounting technology. That's the potential for blockchain, that these really new and interesting companies will come into being using the technology and they will generate enormous amounts of wealth. I don't suggest our clients be investors in Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency because I think the future values are too uncertain. And that activity of mining is also a difficult one, um, very competitive business with very few um, barriers to entry, so very low returns ultimately, um, very, very low returns for, for the miners. I think the analogy that people always come up with in these situations is, is sort of the picks and shovels analogy or the, the Levi Strauss analogy. How do you make money out of a gold, gold mining boom? 
without having to find gold. Without right? having to that, find that, gold. That seems, it seems really hard to figure out which Bitcoin or is Bitcoin the one that's going to win. Right. The Levi's analogy might be the play here. It might be, but... And why, just to, for, for sake of argument, just explain that example. Yeah, well, the, the idea, again, the idea is how do you make money out of, a, out of a gold mining boom without actually digging for gold? Well, you supply the gold miners with everything they need to perform their tasks. Uh, so you, you sell them picks and shovels. Uh, Levi Strauss um, sold them reliable denim clothing. Uh, Worked out pretty well. Worked out very well for him. I mean, even in the Bitcoin bonanza that we've seen in recent years, you've seen chip companies like NVIDIA, for example, see significant increases in sales volumes of very fast computer chips, uh, which we think have been purchased by miners, by payment processors to the, to the Bitcoin system. But I, again, um, I'm not sure that's where the greatest opportunities are. I, again, would go back to the blockchain technology and, and, and I think use really interesting applications of that technology are going to make investors rich uh, in ways that the, the, you know, the run-up in, in the NVIDIA share price has been very beneficial. We've owned it in our growth portfolios uh, for our clients. But um, perhaps that wave is over now. And the, the next round of wealth creation ideas are not going to come from further facilitating cryptocurrency systems, but from interesting uses of the blockchain technology. Paul, one, one last topic. So I think of Bitcoin's price and the fuss about it reaching a crescendo November, December, January of this year. That was around the time where the market really starts to take off. And when I say the market, I mean the broad S&P 500. Bitcoin then goes from 20,000 to roughly 9,000, around the same time the S&P corrects. Do you think there's a correlation there, or is it just coincidental? Well, the, the first thing I want to say is I don't think there's any um, one link that caused all of these events. But I think the correlation idea is, is, is perhaps correct. I think... I described earlier how in a low interest rate environment, people can maintain um, positions in unprofitable investments for a lot longer than they could in a high interest rate environment. And so when I look at the world today and I look at the run-up in cryptocurrencies, for example, which aren't particularly useful and don't generate a stream of cash, uh, and then I look at the, uh, the amazing patience that investors have shown in companies like Amazon, which is barely profitable today, uh, Netflix, which spends a fortune on, on creating original content, but that is so expensive that it's, again, barely makes any money. Or even Tesla, uh, a company that's incredibly capital intensive and yet consistently misses its production targets. I think investors have been amazingly patient with all of these companies. And that patience has been made possible by a low cost of capital, low interest rates. And what you've seen is those interest rates start to move up. And I think that the run-up in interest rates is one of many contributing causes for the decline in the prices of some of the most expensive stocks in the market in recent times, as well as um, potentially the 
a contributing cause to declines in the price of cryptocurrencies in recent times. Paul, thank you for your time today, and thank you for listening. This and all my other podcasts, which span industries from healthcare to tax policy to internet security, are available on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mark Penziner. Any follow-up questions, you can reach me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or in my office at 212-969-6655. Until next time.